Hi everyone, I'm Jill Cook and this is the BJSM podcast. I'm one of the deputy editors at, at the journal. We have a new format for you tonight for our podcast. This is going to be a debate. You may recall that Karen tweeted for new ideas for podcasts, BJSM in 2014, and Chris Littlewood was the first to put up his hand and say, I'd really like to have a debate about the tendon model and where pain fits into it. So that's our topic tonight. What about tendon pathology and how does pain fit together? I have three tendinophiles here to make some clinical sense of the relationship between tendon pathology and pain. I'd like to introduce you first to Chris Littlewood, who's a research fellow at the University of Sheffield in the United Kingdom. He's a chartered physiotherapist and has worked clinically in the UK National Health Services and also in private practice. Chris has published in the field of musculoskeletal physio and research methods and he's currently undertaking a PhD on the rehabilitation of the rotator cuff and he's also recently published a book entitled Understanding Physio Research. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Hi, Jill. Our second person today is Craig Purdom, who will be familiar to some of you from previous podcasts. He's the head of physical therapies at the AIS and he's the co-author of the Tendon Pathology Continuum Model, as well as many other publications. He's also an adjunct professor at Canberra Uni. Welcome, Craig. Welcome, Jill and Chris. And our last person today is Ebony Rio, who is a PhD candidate like Chris at Monash University, and her area of research is in tendon pain. Ebony is a sports physio with expertise in diverse areas such as ballet, rowing, and the Paralympics where she was a member of the Australian medical team in uh, London Olympics 2012. Welcome, Ebony. Thanks, Jill. Right, so Chris, this is your opportunity to pose some questions on um, this pain pathology relationship to both Craig and Ebony. Would you like to go ahead? Yes, great. Well, thanks for this opportunity. The first question that I have, and I guess one that is raised quite frequently, my understanding is that one of the aims of the, the continuum model is to help clinicians target their therapy more effectively based upon the stage of the disorder or the pathology. But with a, a reasonable degree of consistency, we see that structural pathology is not associated with patient-reported pain or disability. And we, we published a review led by Ben Drew in the BJSM last year that suggested structural pathology doesn't change as the symptoms improve and in relation to the cuff and other tendinopathies, the degree of pathology doesn't seem to be a useful prognostic indicator. Ebony and Craig, do you, do you think this challenges the value of a model based upon a, a continuum of pathology? I think it adds another element to it, um, and uh, I'll try and sort of frame the, uh, the answer around that. So <laughs> the continuum model was very much sort of directed at uh, identifying key subsets sort of within this structural pathology, uh, which is a very broad term. Uh, and the reason for doing that is to try and provide practitioners with a greater, a better rationale perhaps for their specificity of interventions. And, and in particular, what we were aiming to do was to really draw the practitioner's attention that <coughs> uh, there are interventions that are quite provocative in the early stages of tendinopathy and um, uh, such as the intratendinous injections or eccentric exercise and uh, and I guess highlighting these 
um, elements was, was something that we want to try and bring uh, to the readership. On the other hand, um, look, we certainly agree that structure is not related to pain, and we've probably known this for 20 to 25 years since Pekka Canis and uh, Laszlo Yozza wrote their, their paper on tendon ruptures back in 1989, or so in Jill's um, uh, ultrasound review in 2000. So we know that once we've got to the disease stage, there's very little relationship between pain and pathology. We can and know that structure does change in the earlier phases. And in fact, one of Peter Maliaris's ultrasound studies actually shows this. So um, yeah, that's the short answer, I think. Chris, I, I completely agree. I think you, you know, you're very right about structures that we can currently image certainly don't correlate with pain. But I think tissue capacity does remain a really important consideration when it comes to tendon. Um, I think for me, you know, as a clinician, the model really highlighted that collagen, you know, the main structure we can image or collagen tearing isn't a primary event, nor is it responsible for pain. You know, we can get pain long before this involvement of the collagen. Um, so, you know, tendon pain does serve to, to protect the, the compromised tendon. And I think the model really allows the clinician to consider the tendon's ability to tolerate loads on an, on an injured structure. And also, as Perd said, to direct the range of therapies that might be available um, appropriately um, rather than sort of lump every every tendon in the same box because we certainly can't do that. But I think, you know, tissue structure does remain an important consideration for athletic ability and even ADLs, even if the relationship with pain per se isn't clear. Okay, great. That leads me on to my next question, really. Um, you both mentioned about guiding clinicians in, in the cool. therapy they can offer. Maybe more from the perspective of a, a general practice. I guess some might say the continuum model could be quite blunt in terms of the range of classifications. Um, and I know it's been previously suggested that most tendon pain in these populations falls into this reactive upon degenerative category. Do you think it's fair to raise this as a limitation of the continuum model? Uh, and I guess the, the take on this would be that, look, we appreciate that um, in both the upper limb and the lower limb, that the tendon presentations really differ widely, um, which is perhaps why they do so poorly with a, a recipe or a, a one-size-fits-all approach, as Ebony just mentioned. And, and here we've got to consider, and we would say, the, the stage of the condition, but certainly also the age of the patient. The level of load you're aspiring to, and Chris, uh, in your paper, you talk a lot about the, the uh, underloading of tendon, whereas I guess uh, I tend to see more athletic tendinopathies where overload is the, the basic driver. Um, uh, we also need to consider, of course, the kinetic chain, the comorbidities, and, and we'll talk certainly more later about uh, CNS factors. Um, so the aim really was to provide um, some principles really for each end of the spectrum and then uh, I guess furnish the clinician with uh, something out of which they could utilise clinical reasoning to uh, put all this together. Uh, and this certainly uh, uh, would include the reactive on degenerative presentation. But, uh, but perhaps while we're talking about that, uh, and, and uh, I think as this has become uh, more widely uh, appreciated, that um, as, we, as we look more closely to it, it seems pretty apparent that uh, whatever we do to the degenerative component, that is direct therapies or injections or whatever, 
that they don't seem to contribute an awful lot to the actual uh, functional outcome and uh, and it's really more one would it would appear about managing the reactive tendinopathy around it um, and one of the, the things I guess take home messages for uh, for people out of this is we're really looking at managing the donut rather than the whole I agree completely. I think from a clinical perspective, you know, the continuum really enables clinicians to start to make sense of the patient in front of them. I think the fact that the model is so fluid but um, out of it comes the most common, you know, clinical presentations actually enhances its utility and, and helps to work out where pain might fit. I think one of the challenges with the source of pain in tendons is the fact that we do see it in both the, the early stage tendinopathy and people with long-standing symptoms and I think that's one of the, the things that's really hard for people to get their head around and, and where pain might fit when we can see it in such a, a range of those presentations and, and I think that's where I found the model very useful in terms of the reactive and reactive on degenerative. I think it fits nicely with, with what we see clinically and helps us sort of explain pain across the range of those presentations. Last, I think it probably also reminds us, as Perth said, not to really get hung up on fixing the pathology because this, you know, it reminds us that this has little capacity, if any, to reverse. So, you know, address their pain, respect the tissue capacity, but re rehabilitate their strength, power and, you know, their, their specific loading for what they need to get back to. Yeah, I mean, that, I think that was one of my concerns. A, a model of pathology might potentially unduly focus people on fixing that pathology using some of the injections that are, are on the market. And I just wondered, so Craig, you mentioned about the idea behind this to begin with was anchoring the early stage pathology and, and the late stage pathology and, and then going ahead and working out in between. Do you, do you think, I mean, in the context of the previous two, two questions, and based upon this idea that most people now see structured and progressive tendon loading as the treatment of choice, do you think it would be more appropriate to classify tendinopathy based upon known prognostic factors? So, for example, high baseline pain um, and also their response to loading. So classifying people by their ability to maybe just tolerate low load isometric and then maybe try and lose some of this association with the pathology. Chris, I'm not uh, as aware of the literature on the, the baseline pain. I might get you to comment back uh, to us after that. Um, but certainly, I used to think that uh, it was very much about what load one could tolerate early as, uh, as our prognostic feature. But I think, for example, a reactive tendinopathy can present as something that has pretty um, high baseline pain but can be settled down pretty quickly uh, with a combination of exercise and, um, dare I say, it, other therapies. And in fact, you, you outcome can be, in fact, a lot quicker than perhaps some of the ones at the other end of the spectrum. So I'm not sure that they perhaps are our absolute uh, means of classifying them, but I'm not sure that I can give you something else that, um, uh, that is going to be any better if we're looking at a purely clinical uh, presentation. We also need to acknowledge somewhere along the line, and perhaps now might be the best, the difference perhaps between upper limb and lower limb tendinopathies, that um, certainly the upper limb tendinopathies seem to be, we get much more commonly this sort of central sensitisation of 
of structures, secondary hyperalgesia. Whereas for the lower limb tendinopathies, we see uh, much less of that. In fact, I would say they're pretty much a rarity in the tendons we see. So, so I think there are a number of factors that come into this baseline pain and also the way they uh, their response, which may need to be factored in. And I'm sure we'll explore this further in the next uh, couple of questions. Ebony, would you like to comment? I think that tendon pain is, is really fascinating and I think that's because we're not quite sure where to put it in terms of physiological or, or pathophysiological and sort of more chronic or persistent pain. And the reason why I think it's so interesting is the work that is around high baseline pain and poor prognosis is in a lot of the chronic pain literature and, and tendon pain doesn't quite fit within that box because they don't get a lot of the features of those other persistent pain states and there is also a clear nociceptive driver for, for tendon pain unlike some of those other pain states. Um, the other interesting thing and, and PERDS brought this up is that high baseline pain actually do very nicely with high load isometrics. So. Um, again, that, that might be quite unique of tendons. People with other acute pain states, you know, you're not necessarily going to give them the high loads that we're very comfortable putting tendons into. And one of the, the beauties of isometrics is the fact you can increase loads for the painful tendon to actually reduce their pain. And, you know, it's immediate and you, and you get a sustained benefit. So um, because isometrics, you know, we use them clinically to allow tendon load, you know, which we know is beneficial for the tendon, but it's also got some fantastic cortical responses that change pain and motor inhibition. So uh, a recent study that we did in people with, you know, very high patellar tendon pain, we used isometrics to immediately improve their decline squat score, but also their strength improved. And that was following just a single bout of isometrics. We significantly changed pain, but also motor inhibitions. As we sort of said before, the structure and progressive loads required from here, but isometrics are great for that initial pain and, and to help start to restore people back to their function and then progress them on from from there and you know clinically it's really useful because pain is the main reason obviously that people present to us and in terms of the the point about the pathology I agree insofar as we need to remember that you know tendinopathy is a clinical diagnosis so we shouldn't be basing a diagnosis of tendinopathy on any radiology um, you know the tendon may not even be the source of symptoms in in that patient but it's very difficult to have some sort of prognostic tree because we're such complex human beings and there's so many things that do contribute to the experience of pain and, and the person in front of you that it would be really hard to come up with something like a flow chart that enabled people to have anything more directive. I, I think the best we can do is implore our clinical reasoning with our knowledge of the local tendon pathology and, and the CNS modulation. Yeah, I mean, I guess I was proposing the idea of prognostic factors because what I hear reasonably frequently is people moving away from tendon loading programs because of a lack of response or because they haven't changed by six weeks or 12 weeks. And I just wonder if a greater recognition of... Really? What? Yeah, Sorry, sure. I don't mean to interrupt, but is that a clinical um, kind of thing that's going around or what, what, what are those sort of time frames? There are definite clinical anecdotes and, and, and also yeah, right. people at conferences. And, and, and this, this is the idea that you know, we're not responding by six weeks, so we may well intervene with 
another another passive therapy to to fix the pathology. And I just wondered if we had a better understanding of prognostic factors, it might help us to frame the idea that loading does take time, and it may take a few weeks in some people, it may take a number of months in others. I just felt that that clarification might be helpful from a clinical perspective. I really like the concept of prognostic factors, um, but I'd uh, perhaps need to think more a little bit about what, you know, certainly in the athletic uh, group, what prognostic factors we might that we might use because certainly the high baseline pain doesn't seem to be it in this group, but absolutely acknowledge that there are other groups of tendinopathies. And I think we've got to acknowledge that we could be seeing different predominant features in some of these uh, differing tendinopathies. Yeah, yeah, but the prognostic factors are, are just one issue. I think what might be helpful across the populations is, is the response to load. So people that can't particularly tolerate load and they're complaining of increasing pain after loading. Unlike some of these patients that you load them, they say, no, that actually makes me it feel better. I think that might be a key indicator as well that these people might take longer. And we need to factor these these individual responses into our to our time frame for rehab. Or we need to consider differential diagnosis as well, to be honest, because I think one of the um, brilliant things about isometrics is their immediate effect on um, tendon pain. And, and I am speaking about the lower limb because that's where my research lies, but I'd be wary of the tendon that couldn't tolerate isometric loading because it's not energy storage and release for the tendon. So if people are getting increasing pain after doing a bout of isometrics, as a clinician, I'd be going back to the drawing board and, and rechecking my differential diagnosis. That would be the first thing. I, I like the concept of prognostic indicators. I just don't know what they might be. And I guess if they're around the context of, of buying us the time we need to rehab the tendon properly and to progressively load it, then that would be positive. But I think if it was around, well, if it's not better by this time, then there's you know, let's implore a, a passive therapy, then, as you said, that would actually be quite unfortunate. You know, Jill and Perth say all the time, we give bone and other tissues, we, we give it time, we're just not prepared to give tendon time. We, we think they should be better very quickly. So the, the tendon that doesn't tolerate load, I think as uh, clinicians, we're sometimes really bad at understanding what loads are good and what loads are bad. So sometimes if the tendon can't tolerate loads, it's not necessarily that the tendon's at fault or there is a differential diagnosis issue. Often it's the load that we put on them that's wrong. And I think you only get good at understanding the load that tendon like by treating a lot of them. And I think the clinician that might see one or two every month is probably going to struggle with really understanding those complex loading strategies. So, so Ebony, you mentioned this idea of differential diagnosis, which I, I wouldn't dispute. Um, but we, we recently wrote a paper in, in manual therapy, and it was building on some of the work by Lorimer Mosley. And I know that the review that, that the three of you um, published a couple of months ago also touched on this. This work suggests that we, we should consider pain as an output of the CNS rather than solely an input from pathological tissue. And our paper in manual therapy was largely based upon the limitations, or at least the limitations as we saw them, of models based upon structural pathology. And it seems that we, we, we consistently mistake nociceptive input as pain. And again, I, I just wondered whether the continuum model perpetuates this. 
um, because of its focus on the tissue and I guess there is writing around this now, but this, this lack of ref recognition of the, of the role in the CNS in any experience. And again, I'd, I'd be grateful for your comments about that. I, I agree with you about, um, you know, nociception being an input and there's so many potential outputs. And I think, you know, tendons are incredibly interesting. They, they might, in fact, be a little bit unique. Tendon pain does have a clear nociceptive driver from the tissue um, and load, even though we, we don't know what the source is yet. But many of the, you know, the central nervous system features that we see in other chronic pain states, you know, tendon seems to be a bit protected from um, such a spreading of pain. Even, you know, people that have had tendon pain for a long time, you know, are still, it's still a very well localised pain. There's certainly modulation by the central nervous system, but I think it's very possible that the way the central nervous system modulates it and interprets it is different for different tendons and it's likely to include, you know, significant inhibition in some cases and, and possibly amplification in others. And this is quite likely to be different for things like the upper and lower limb differences. Um, you know, it might be attributed to where those body parts are on the sensory and motor homunculus and, you know, the, the communication between the hemispheres. It, it might be where the neurons cross over in the spinal cord. It might be even the context around the load. You know, if your upper limb tendon injury is associated with work and you hate your job versus volleyball and you love playing, you know, the, the pain experience as an output is likely to be very different um, so I completely agree. And in the recent paper that we authored, you know, Lorimer had significant input, you know, to start to tease out those local drivers because they are important in tendon pain. There is certainly something that is on-off and very much related to the local tissue. But the central nervous system absolutely has to be considered. And I think there's a lot more to come in this area. But the local tissue does drive the pain experience unlike some other persistent pain states but we do need to understand better the role of the central nervous system in either up or down regulating you know the output of pain the the end experience craig would you like to comment at all i think the challenging thing for clinicians is how much of this is the oh, in quotation marks normal tenon response and how much of this uh of what the patient's experiencing is uh, CNS sensitization. And um, not everyone's got QST testing and everything, in, uh, and it takes an awful long time. So I'm just wondering whether we, uh, our challenge really is to come up with better instruments or, or cues or um, other elements to try and identify these um, this particular subgroup, which is it's really important in in our management. You know, it's a multifactorial um, issue, and we've got to consider. And Bill Finch and Zeno and uh, Coombs wrote this. You know that we've got to almost try and particulate the degree of local tissue pathology, CNS contribution, and uh, and motor changes, and 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 pull that together in our overall management in a sort of holistic approach. Okay, so uh, Ebony. Craig, my final point really, I mean, we've covered quite a lot of ground in this discussion, but could, could you comment on how you see the continuum model responding and, and developing in future years in, in, in relation to, to the discussion we've had today? Chris, looking over, and I think it's probably going to be as recently as the next two to five years that we're going to see um, 
an ability to try and pull together a lot more elements than um, the, just the local tissue element that we consider within the continuum model. And uh, let's also acknowledge that there are seven models um, out there. Uh, so there's a Ledbetter model, Anoski, um, Michelle Abate, our own, uh, Coombs, uh, Fu, and also um, the Littlewood uh, model. So we need to uh, some means of trying to pull all of this together because uh, it's fair to say none of us have really done a good job of, of pulling together what looks like the uh, the truly big picture. Um, so what sort of things would we like to see in it? We, we'd certainly like to uh, pull the uh, work from Coombs on the local tissue element, the central sensitisation, and also this concept around motor changes, and we'll learn more of those in the coming years. Um, also acknowledging that uh, of course we see upregulation of pain, but also certainly in some of the lower limb tendinopathies as we've alluded to, we see downregulation of pain. Uh, and that seems um, something that we need to appreciate much better. It's mentioned in, uh, in a small subset of one of the Van Wilgram papers, but uh, clinicians certainly do see this as well. Furthermore, I think an ability to appreciate not only the high-load presentations, but uh, and you made very nice reference to this, but these low-load presentations and certainly uh, our older and infirm patients so who do have genuine tendinopathies and understanding these better, and uh, which certainly will need a, a, a different approach. Uh, and lastly, uh, perhaps teasing out more of this difference between the upper and lower limb presentations, um, this greater degree for tendency for sensitisation in the upper limb and certainly that of more inhibition at times in the lower limb. And is this more primal in origin? Is it um, driven by our constant need to escape our predators, uh, which is why our lower limbs um, may have more of that inhibition or is it something different to that? Who knows? But I think uh, I think we're in a very dynamic field and um, it will be great to be able to pull all these together in some sort of model into the future and it certainly won't be a continuum model, it'll be something much more encompassing that and I think it'll be very exciting. Very beautifully put, Perds. I think the only other thing that I'd like to comment is um, maybe just to agree with you to say that I think where we go from here it would be a mistake to just look at local tissue changes and it would be as much a mistake to only consider um, central nervous system and to consider tendon pain as a chronic pain where we don't rehabilitate the musculotendinous unit and the kinetic chain. And I think that that specificity is one of the absolutely important things for clinicians that it isn't about general exercise or, or some of the other interventions that you might give people with persistent pain. It's about absolutely specifically loading the tendon. In, in the study I talked about before with the patella tendon pain, they actually didn't get a crossover effect. You had to load the affected tendon to get pain relief in that tendon. So if you had bilateral pain, you didn't get any pain relief on the side that you didn't exercise. So I think specificity is important and going forward, we need to be aware of, of all of the elements that Perds mentioned and, and not go so far up the other end that we put um, tendon pain in you know, the same, the same bucket as some of the, the chronic pains because it is, it is a little bit different. It's got, it's got a lot of features that don't fit nicely into any current models, as, as Perth said. 
I'd just like to thank you all for your time and, and your thought, and I really appreciated the opportunity to put the questions to you. So thanks all very much. And I'd like to thank everyone that participated, and I'd say congratulations to the listeners if you managed to make it to the end of this podcast because you've done particularly well. <laughs> and uh, we look forward to you listening to the next one from BJSM. Thanks all, and bye.